11, drew a circle round the king with his staff, and told him that he should not stir out of it till he had given a decisive answer. The king was so frightened by this boldness that he immediately promised to withdraw his troops. Eumenes, king of Pergamus, whose conduct during the war with Perseus had excited the suspicion of the senate, hastened to make his submission in person, but was not allowed to enter Rome. Perugias, king of Bithynia, had the meanness to appear at Rome with his head shaven, and in the dress of a liberated slave. The Rhodians, who had offered their mediation during the war with Perseus, were deprived of Lycia and Caria. In Greece itself the Senate acted in the same arbitrary manner. It was evident that they meant to bring the whole country under their sway. In these views they were assisted by various despots and traitors in the Grecian cities, and especially by Calicrates, a man of great influence among the Achaeans, who for many years had lent himself as the base tool of the Romans. He now denounced more than a thousand Achaeans as having favored the cause of Perseus. Among them were the historian Polybius, and the most distinguished men in every city of the league. They were all apprehended and sent to Italy, where they were distributed among the cities of Etruria, without being brought to trial. Polybius alone was allowed to reside at Rome in the house of Inilis Pons, where he became the intimate friend of his son Scipio Africanus the Younger. The Achaean League continued to exist, but it was really subject to Calicrates. The Achaean exiles languished in confinement for seventeen years. Their request to be allowed to return to their native land had been more than once refused, but the younger Scipio Africanus at length interceded on their behalf, and prevailed upon Cato to advocate their return. The conduct of the aged senator was kinder than his words. He did not interpose till the end of a long debate, and then simply asked, Have we nothing better to do than to sit here all day long debating whether a parcel of worn-out Greeks shall be carried to their graves here or in Achaia? A decree of the Senate gave the exiles permission to return, but, when Polybius was anxious to obtain from the Senate restoration to their former honors, Cato bade him, with a smile, beware of returning to the Cyclops' den to fetch away any trifles he had left behind him. The Achaean exiles, whose numbers were now reduced from 1,000 to 300, landed in Greece B.C. 151 with feelings exasperated by their long confinement and ready to indulge in any rash enterprise against Rome. Polybius, who had returned with the other exiles, in vain exhorted them to peace and unanimity, and to avoid a hopeless struggle with the Roman power. Shortly afterward an adventurer laid claim to the throne of Macedonia B.C. 149. He was a man of low origin called Andriscus, but he pretended to be the son of Perseus, and assumed the name of Philippus. At first he met with some success and defeated the Roman praetor Juvides, but, after reigning scarcely a year, he was conquered and taken prisoner by Cunetalus. The temporary success of Andriscus had encouraged the war party in the Achaean League. Polybius had quitted the country to join his friend Scipio in Africa, and Dias and Critolaus, the most violent enemies of Rome, had now undisputed sway in the League. Dias incited the Achaeans to attack Sparta, on the ground that, Instead of appealing to the League respecting a boundary question, as they ought to have done, they had violated its laws by sending a private embassy to Rome. The Spartans, feeling themselves incompetent to resist this attack, appealed to the Romans for assistance, and in B.C. 147 two Roman commissioners were sent to Greece to settle these disputes. The commissioners decided that not only Sparta, but Corinth, and all the other cities, except those of Achaia, should be restored to independence. Their decision occasioned serious riots at Corinth. All the Spartans in the town were seized, 
and even the Roman commissioners narrowly escaped violence. On their return to Rome a fresh embassy was dispatched to demand satisfaction for these outrages, but the violent and impolitic conduct of Cretolaus, then strategos of the League, rendered all attempts at accommodation fruitless, and, after the return of the ambassadors, the Senate declared war against the League. The cowardice and incompetence of Cretolaus as a general were only equaled by his previous insolence. On the approach of the Romans from Macedonia under Metellus he did not even venture to make a stand at Thermopylae, and, being overtaken by them near Scarfia, in Lacris, he was totally defeated, and never again heard of. Dias, who succeeded him as Strategus, displayed rather more energy and courage, and made preparations to defend Corinth. Metellus had hoped to have had the honor of bringing the war to a conclusion, and had almost reached Corinth. When the consul Almanis landed on the isthmus and assumed the command, the struggle was soon brought to a close. Dias was defeated in battle, and Corinth was immediately evacuated, not only by the troops of the League, but also by the greater part of the inhabitants. On entering the city, mummies put to the sword the few males who remained, sold the women and children as slaves, and, having earned away all its treasures, consigned it to the flames BC 146. Corinth was filled with masterpieces of ancient art, but mummies was so insensible to their surpassing excellence as to stipulate with those who contracted to convey them to Italy that, if any were lost in the passage, they should be replaced by others of equal value. Mummies then employed himself in chastising and regulating the whole of Greece, and ten commissioners were sent from Rome to settle its future condition. The whole country, to the borders of Macedonia and Epirus, was formed into a Roman province under the name of Achaia, derived from that confederacy which had made the last struggle for political existence. The Roman commissioners then proceeded northward, and also formed Macedonia into a province. Polybius, who had hastened to Greece immediately after the capture of Corinth, exerted all his influence to alleviate the misfortunes of his countrymen, and to procure for them favorable terms. As a friend of Scipio he was received by the Roman commissioners with great distinction and obtained from them a relaxation of some of the most severe enactments which had been made against the Achaeans. Metellus and Mummies both triumphed on their return to Rome, the former taking the surname of Macedonicus, the latter that of Achaeacus. Carthage, so long the rival of Rome, had fallen in the same year as Corinth. The reforms introduced by Hannibal after the Battle of Zama had restored some degree of prosperity to the state, and, Though the Roman party obtained the supremacy after he had been compelled to fly to Antiochus, the commercial activity of the Carthaginians restored to the city much of its former influence. Rome looked with a jealous eye upon its reviving power, and encouraged Mazinissa to make repeated aggressions upon its territory. At length the popular party, having obtained more weight in the government, made a stand against these repeated encroachments of Mazinissa. Thereupon Cato recommended an instant declaration of war against Carthage but this met with considerable opposition in the Senate, and it was at length arranged that an embassy should be sent to Africa to gain information as to the real state of affairs. The ten ambassadors, of whom Cato was the chief, offered their arbitration, which was accepted by Mazinissa, but rejected by the Carthaginians, who had no confidence in Roman justice. The deputies accurately observed the warlike preparations and the defenses of the frontier. They then entered the city and saw the strength and population it had acquired since the Second Punic War. Upon their return Cato was the foremost in asserting that Rome would never be safe as long as Carthage was so powerful, so hostile, and so near. 
One day he drew a bunch of early ripe figs from beneath his robe, and, throwing it upon the floor of the Senate House, said to the assembled fathers, who were astonished at the freshness and fineness of the fruit, those figs were gathered but three days ago at Carthage, so close is our enemy to our walls. From that time forth, whenever he was called upon for his vote in the Senate, though the subject of debate bore no relation to Carthage, his words were, Delinda established Carthago, Carthage must be destroyed. Cato's opinion prevailed, and the Senate only waited for a favorable opportunity to destroy the city. This soon occurred, the popular party having driven into exile the powerful partisans of Mazinissa. The old Numidian king invaded the Carthaginian territory, and defeated the army which had been raised to oppose him B.C. 150. This led to a change in the government, and the aristocratical party, once more restored to power, hastened to make their submission to Rome. But the Romans had resolved upon war, and, when the Carthaginian ambassadors arrived at Rome, the two consuls were already levying troops. The ambassadors, knowing that resistance was hopeless, sought to appease the anger of the Senate by unconditional obedience. They were ordered to send 300 youths of the noblest families to meet the consuls at Lilibium, and were told that the consuls would acquaint them with the farther orders of the Senate. At Lilibium the consuls found the hostages awaiting them and then promised the Carthaginian envoys that the decision of the Senate should be announced to them in Africa. Upon reaching Utica, which surrendered to them in despair, the consuls informed the Carthaginians that, as their state would henceforth be under the protection of Rome, they had no longer any occasion for arms, and must surrender all the munitions of war. Even this demand was complied with, and the Roman commissioners who were sent to Carthage brought to the Roman camp 200.000 stand of arms and two thousand catapults, the consuls, thinking that the state was now defenseless, threw off the mask, and announced the final resolution of the senate, that Carthage must be destroyed, and that its inhabitants must build another city ten miles distant from the coast, when this terrible news reached Carthage, despair and rage seized all the citizens, they resolved to perish rather than submit to so perfidious a foe, all the Italians within the walls were massacred, the members of the former government took to flight, and the popular party once more obtained the power. Almost superhuman efforts were made to obtain means of defense, corn was collected from every quarter, arms were manufactured day and night, the women cut off their long hair to be made into strings for the catapults, and the whole city became one vast workshop. The consuls now saw that it would be necessary to have recourse to force, but they had no military ability, and their attacks were repulsed with great loss. The younger Scipio Africanus, who was then serving in the army as military tribune, displayed great bravery and military skill, and, on one occasion, saved the army from destruction. Still no permanent success was gained, and Scipio returned to Rome, accompanied by the prayers of the soldiers that he would come back as their commander. In the following year B.C. 148 the new consul El Calpornis Piso was even less successful than his predecessors. The soldiers became discontented, the Roman Senate and people who had anticipated an easy conquest, were indignant at their disappointment, and all eyes were turned to Scipio. Accordingly, when he became a candidate for the aedileship for the ensuing year B.C. 147, he was unanimously elected consul, though he was only 37 years old, and had not, therefore, attained the legal age for the office. This remarkable man was, as we have already said, the son of Elimilis Paus, the conqueror of Macedonia. He was adopted by Piscipio, the son of the great Africanus, 
and is therefore called Scipio African is minor, to distinguish him from his grandfather by adoption. To these names that of Inelianus is sometimes added to mark the family of his birth, so that his full designation was P. Cornelius Scipio Africanus Inelianus. His intimacy with the historian Polybius has been already mentioned. He appears from his earliest years to have devoted himself with ardor to the study of literature, and he eagerly availed himself of the superior knowledge of Polybius to direct him in his literary pursuits. He was accompanied by the Greek historian in almost all his campaigns, and, in the midst of his most active military duties, lost no opportunity of enlarging his knowledge of Greek literature and philosophy by constant intercourse with his friend, nor did he neglect the literature of his own country, for Terence was admitted to his intimacy, and he is even said to have assisted him in the composition of his comedies. His friendship with Lales, whose tastes and pursuits were so congenial to his own, has been immortalized by Cicero's celebrated treatise on friendship. Illustration Plan of Carthage, A inner port, B outer port, C outlet to sea, D Scipio's mole, E new outlet to sea, cut by the Carthaginians. Scipio landed in Africa in BC 147. His first step was to restore discipline to the army. He next took by storm Megara, a suburb of Carthage, and then proceeded to construct a work across the entrance of the harbor to cut off the city from all supplies by sea but the Carthaginians defended themselves with a courage and an energy rarely paralleled in history. While Scipio was engaged in this laborious task, they built a fleet of fifty ships in their inner port, and cut a new channel communicating with the sea. Hence, when Scipio at length succeeded in blocking up the entrance of the harbor, he found all his labor useless, as the Carthaginians sailed out to sea by the new outlet, but this fleet was destroyed after an obstinate engagement which lasted three days. At length. In the following year BC 146, Scipio had made all his preparations for the final assault. The Carthaginians defended themselves with the courage of despair. They fought from street to street, and from house to house, and the work of destruction and butchery went on for six days. The fate of this once magnificent city moved Scipio to tears, and, anticipating that a similar catastrophe might one day befall Rome, he is said to have repeated the lines of the Iliad over the flames of Carthage. The day shall come when sacred Troy shall perish, and Priam and his people shall be slain. Scipio returned to Rome in the same year, and celebrated a splendid triumph on account of his victory. The surname of Africanus, which he had inherited by adoption, had now been acquired by his own exploits. A portion of the dominions of Carthage was assigned to Utica. The remainder was formed into a Roman province under the name of Africa. Carthage itself was leveled to the ground and a curse pronounced upon any who should rebuild the city, see Gracchus, however, only twenty-four years afterward, attempted to found a new city upon the ancient site under the name of Junonia, but evil prodigies at its foundation, and the subsequent death of Gracchus, interrupted this design, the project was revived by Julius Caesar, and was carried into effect by Augustus, and Roman Carthage, built at a short distance from the former city, became the capital of Africa and one of the most flourishing cities in the ancient world. In the 5th century it was taken by Genseric, and made the capital of the Vandal Kingdom in Africa. It was retaken by Belisarius, but was finally captured and destroyed by the Arabs in AD 647. Its site is now desolate, marked only by a few ruins. Footnote 57, this story must appear too strange to those who know not that it was a custom for Roman senators, when called upon for their vote 
to express no matter what the question any opinion which they deemed of great importance to the welfare of the state. Chapter XX. Spanish Wars. B.C. 153-133. First Servile War. B.C. 134-132. The Generous Policy of Tib. Sempronis Gracchus in B.C. 179 had secured for Spain a long period of tranquility, but in B.C. 153, the inhabitants of Sigida having commenced rebuilding the walls of their town, which was forbidden by one of the articles in the Treaty of Gracchus, a new war broke out, which lasted for many years. The Celtiberians in general espoused the cause of Sigida, and the consul Q. Fabius Nobilier made an unsuccessful campaign against them. His successor, the consul M. Claudius Marcellus, grandson of the Marcellus who was celebrated in the Second Punic War, carried on the war with vigor, and concluded a peace with the enemy on very fair terms B.C. 152. The consul of the following year, L. Lucinis Lucullus, finding the Celtiberians at peace, turned his arms against the Bacchiae, Canterbury, and other nations as yet unknown to the Romans. At the same time the Praetor Sulpicius Galba invaded Lusitania, but, though he met with some advantage at first, he was subsequently defeated with great loss, and escaped with only a few horsemen. In the following year B.C. 150 he again invaded the country from the south, while Lucullus attacked it from the north. The Lusitanians therefore sent ambassadors to Galba to make their submission. He received them with kindness, lamented the poverty of their country, and promised to assign them more fertile lands, if they would meet him in three bodies, with their wives and children, in three places which he fixed upon. The simple people believed him, but he meditated one of the most atrocious acts of treachery and cruelty recorded in history. He fell upon each body separately, and butchered them, men, women, and children, without distinction. Among the very few who escaped was Myriathus, the future avenger of his nation. Galba was brought to trial on his return to Rome on account of this outrage, and Cato, then in the 85th year of his age, invaded against his treachery and baseness. But Galba was eloquent and wealthy, and the liberal employment of his money, together with the compassion excited by his weeping children and ward, obtained his acquittal. Viriathus appears to have been one of those able guerrilla chiefs whom Spain has produced at every period of her history. He is said to have been first a shepherd and afterward a robber, but he soon acquired unbounded influence over the minds of his countrymen. After the massacre of Galba, those Lusitanians who had not left their homes rose as a man against the rule of such treacherous tyrants. Viriathus at first avoided all battles in the plains and waged an incessant predatory warfare in the mountains, and he met with such continued good fortune, that numbers flocked to his standard. The aspect of affairs seemed at length so threatening that in B.C. 145 the Romans determined to send the consul Q. Fabius Maximus into the country. In the following year Fabius defeated Viriathus with great loss, but this success was more than counterbalanced by the revolt of the Celtiberians, the bravest and most noble-minded of the Spaniards. The war is usually known by the name of the New Mondine, from New Mondia, a town on the river Doru, and the capital of the Aragachi, the most powerful of the Celtiberian tribes. Henceforward two Roman armies were employed in Spain, one in the north against the Celtiberians, and the other in the south against Viriathus and the Lusitanians. The war against the Lusitanians was at first brought to a conclusion. In B.C. 141 Viriathus surprised the proconsul Fabius Servilianus in a narrow pass, where escape was impossible. He used his victory with moderation, and suffered the Romans to depart uninjured. 
on condition of their allowing the Lusitanians to retain and disturb possession of their own territory, and recognizing him as a friend and ally of Rome. This treaty was ratified by the Roman people, but the consul Q. Servilius Sapio, who succeeded Fabius in the command in southern Spain, found some pretext for violating the peace, and renewed the war against Viriathus. The latter sent envoys to Sapio to propose fresh terms of peace, but the Roman consul persuaded them, by promises of large rewards, to murder their general. On their return they assassinated him in his own tent, and made their escape to the Roman camp before the Lusitanians were aware of the death of their chief. But, when the murderers claimed their reward, the consul coolly told them that the Romans did not approve of the murder of a general by his own soldiers. The Lusitanians continued in arms a little longer but the war virtually terminated by the death of Viriathus. Their country was finally reduced to subjection by the consul de Junius Brutus in B.C. 138, who also crossed the rivers Doro and Minho, and received the surname of Calaricus in consequence of his receiving the submission of the Calaici, or Galici, a people in the northwest of Spain. The war against the Celtiberians was at first conducted with success by the consul Cunitalis Macedonicus, who during his praetorship had defeated the pretender to the Macedonian throne, but the successors of Metalis experienced repeated disasters, and at length, in B.C. 137, the consul C. Hostilis Mancinus, being entirely surrounded by the Celtiberians, was obliged to sign a peace with them, in which he recognized their independence. He only obtained these terms on condition that his quaestor, Tib, Sempronis Gracchus, who was greatly respected by the Spaniards for his father's sake, should become responsible for the execution of the treaty. The Senate refused to ratify it, and went through the hypocritical ceremony of delivering over Mancinus, bound and naked, to the enemy. But the new Mondines, like the Samnites in a similar case, declined to accept the offering. The new Mondine war continued in the same disastrous manner to the Roman arms, and the people now called upon Scipio Africanus to bring it to a conclusion. We have already traced the career of this eminent man till the fall of Carthage. In B.C. 142 he was censor with Almonis. In the administration of the duties of his office he followed in the footsteps of Cato, and attempted to repress the growing luxury and immorality of his contemporaries, but his efforts were thwarted by his colleague. He vainly wished to check in the people the appetite for foreign conquests, and in the solemn prayer which he offered at the conclusion of the lustrum he changed the usual supplication for the enlargement of the republic into a one for its preservation. He was now elected consul a second time, and was sent into Spain in B.C. 134. His first efforts were directed, as in Africa, to the restoration of discipline in the army, which had become disorganized and demoralized by every kind of indulgence. Two remarkable men served under Scipio in this war, Marius, afterward seven times consul, and the Numidian prince Jugurtha, having brought his troops into an effective condition, Scipio, in the following year, proceeded to allay siege to Numandia. The town was defended by its inhabitants with the courage and perseverance which has preeminently distinguished the Spaniards in all ages in the defense of their walled towns. It was not till they had suffered the most dreadful extremities of famine eating even the bodies of the dead, that they surrendered the place B.C. 133. Fifty of the principal inhabitants were selected to adorn Scipio's triumph, the rest were sold as slaves, and the town was leveled to the ground. He now received the surname of Numandinus, in addition to that of Africanus. During the Numandine war Rome was menaced by a new danger, which revealed one of the plague spots in the Republic. 
We have already had occasion to describe the decay of the free population in Italy, and the great increase in the number of slaves from the foreign conquests of the state, as slaves were cheap, in consequence of the abundant supply. The masters did not care for their lives, and treated them with great barbarity. A great part of the land in Italy was turned into sheep walks. The slaves were made responsible for the sheep committed to their care, and were left to supply themselves with food as they best could. It was an aggravation of their wretched lot, that almost all these slaves had once been freemen, and were not distinguished from their masters by any outward sign, like the Negroes in the United States. In Sicily the free population had diminished even more than in Italy, and it was in this island that the first servile war broke out. Domophilus, a wealthy landowner of Enna, had treated his slaves with excessive barbarity. They entered into a conspiracy against their cruel master, and consulted a Syrian slave of the name of Yunus, who belonged to another master. This Yunus pretended to the gift of prophecy, and appeared to breathe flames of fire from his mouth. He not only promised them success, but joined in the enterprise himself. Having assembled to the number of about 400 men, they suddenly attacked Enna, and, being joined by their fellow citizens within the town, quickly made themselves masters of it. Great excesses were committed, and almost all the freemen were put to death with horrid tortures. Yunus had, while yet a slave, prophesied that he should become king. He now assumed the royal diadem, and the title of King Antiochus. Sicily was at this time swarming with slaves, a great proportion of them Syrians, who flocked to the standard of their countrymen and fellow bondsmen. The revolt now became general and the island was delivered over to the murderous fury of men maddened by oppression, cruelty, and insult. The praetors, who first led armies against them, were totally defeated, and in B.C. 134 it was thought necessary to send the consul C. Fulvius Flaccus to subdue the insurrection, but neither he, nor the consul of the following year, succeeded in this object, and it was not till B.C. 132 that the consul P. Repiles brought the war to an end by the capture of Toromenium and Enna the two strongholds of the insurgents. The life of Yunus was spared, probably with the intention of carrying him to Rome, but he died in prison at Morgadia. About the same time died Edelus Philometer, the last king of Pergamus, leaving no children B.C. 133. He bequathed his kingdom and treasures to the Roman people, but Aristonicus, a natural son of Eumenes, the father of Edelus, laid claim to the crown. He even defeated the consul Pelissini's Crossus who fell in the engagement B.C. 131, but he was himself defeated and taken prisoner in the following year. The kingdom of Pergamus was formed into a Roman province under the name of Asia B.C. 129. The foreign dominions of Rome now comprised the ten following provinces, to which is added the date of the formation of each, 1. Sicily, B.C. 241, 2. Sardinia and Corsica, B.C. 238, 3. 4. The two Spains, Sicarier and Ulterior, B.C. 205, 5, Galeasa Salpina, B.C. 191, 6, Macedonia, B.C. 146, 7, Illyricum, probably formed at the same time as Macedonia, 8, Achaia, that island southern Greece, virtually a province after the capture of Corinth, B.C. 146, though the exact date of its formation is unknown, 9, Africa, consisting of the dominions of Carthage, B.C. 146, 10, Asia, including the kingdom of Pergamus, B.C. 129, 
to these an eleventh was added in BC 118 by the conquest of the southern portion of Transalpine Gaul between the Alps and the Pyrenees. In contrast with the other portions of Gaul, it was frequently called simply the Provincia, a name which has been retained in the modern province. Chapter XXI. The Gracchi. BC 133-121. The more thoughtful Romans had foreseen the dangers with which Rome was menaced by the impoverishment of her free population and the alarming increase in the number of slaves. It is said that Lelis, the friend of the elder Scipio Africanus, had at the close of the Second Punic War meditated some reforms to arrest the growing evil, but had given them up as impracticable. The Servile War in Sicily had lately revealed the extent of the peril to which the Republic was exposed. It must have been felt by many that the evil would never have reached its present height if the Livinian law had been observed, if men had been appointed to watch over its execution and if the newly acquired public lands had from time to time been distributed among the people. But the nobles, from long possession, had come to regard the public land as their own, many had acquired their portions by purchase, inheritance, or marriage, and everyone shrank from interfering with interests supported by long prescription and usage. Still, unless something was done, matters would become worse, the poor would become poorer, and the slaves more numerous and the state would descend more rapidly into the yawning abyss beneath it. Under these circumstances, two young men, belonging to one of the noblest families in Rome, came forward to save the Republic, but perished in the attempt. Their violent death may be regarded as the beginning of the civil wars, which ended in the destruction of freedom, and the establishment of the despotism of the empire. Tiberius and Caius Gracchus were the sons of Tib, Sempronius Gracchus, whose prudent measures gave tranquility to Spain for so many years. They lost their father at an early age, but they were educated with the utmost care by their mother, Cornelia, the daughter of Scipio Africanus the Elder, who had inherited from her father a love of literature, and united in her person the severe virtue of the ancient Roman matron with the superior knowledge and refinement which then prevailed in the higher classes at Rome. She engaged for her sons the most eminent Greek teachers, and it was mainly owing to the pains she took with their education that they surpassed all the Roman youths of their age. Tiberius was nine years older than his brother Caius. The latter had more ability, but Tiberius was the more amiable, and won all hearts by the simplicity of his demeanor and his graceful and persuasive eloquence. So highly was Tiberius esteemed, that as soon as he reached the age of manhood he was elected augur, and at the banquet given at his installation Apius Claudius, then chief of the senate, offered him his daughter in marriage. When Apius returned home and informed his wife that he had just betrothed their daughter, she exclaimed, Why in such a hurry? Unless you have got Tib, Gracchus for her husband, Sempronia, the only sister of Tiberius, was married to the younger Scipio Africanus. Tiberius was thus, by birth and marriage, connected with the noblest families in the Republic the grandson of the conqueror of Hannibal the son-in-law of the chief of the Senate and the brother-in-law of the destroyer of Carthage. Tiberius served under his brother-in-law in Africa, and was the first who scaled the walls of Carthage. He was quaestor in B.C. 137, and accompanied the consul C. Hostiles to Spain, where he saved the army by obtaining a treaty with the new Mondines, which D.H.